0: CHAPTER FOUR Robin bowed to her very carefully and stood upright again. She had seen in an instant how changed he was, in that swift instant in which her eyes had singled him out from the little crowd of men that had come into the room with Anthony at their head. It was a change which she could scarcely have put into words, unless she had said that it was the conception of the Levite within his soul. He was dressed soberly and richly, with the sword at his side, in great riding boots splashed to the knees with mud, with his cloak thrown back, and he carried his great-brimmed hat in his hand. All this was as it might have been in Derby, though perhaps his dress was a shade more dignified than that in which she had ever seen him. But the change was in his face and bearing. He bore himself like a man, and a restrained man, and there was besides that subtle air which her woman's eyes could see, but which even her woman's wit could not properly describe. She made room for him to sit beside her, and then Father Campion's voice spoke. "'These are the gentlemen, then,' he said, "'and two more are not yet come. "'Gentlemen,' he bowed, "'and which is Captain Fortescue?' "'A big man, distinguished from the rest "'by a slight military air "'and by a certain vividness of costume "'and a bristling feather in his hat, "'bowed back to him. "'We have met once before, Mr... Mr. Edmonds,' "'he said, at Valladolid.' "'Father Campion smiled. "'Yes, sir, for five or ten minutes, "'and I was in the same room with your Honour "'once at the Duke of Guise's. "'And now, sir, who are the rest of your company?' The others were named one by one, and Marjorie eyed each of them carefully. It was her business to know them again if they ever should meet in the north. And for a few minutes the company moved here and there, bowing and saluting and taking their seats. There were still a couple of men who were not yet come, but these two arrived a few minutes later, and it was not until she had said a word or two to them all, and Father Campion had named her and her good works to them, that she found herself back again with Robin in a seat a little apart. You look very well, she said with an admirable composure. His eyes twinkled. I am as weary as a man can be, he said. We have ridden since before dawn. And you, and your good works? Marjorie explained, describing to him something of the system by which priests were safeguarded now in the north, the districts into which the county was divided, and the apportioning of the responsibilities among the faithful houses. It was her business, she said, to receive messages and to pass them on. She had entertained perhaps a dozen priests since the summer. Perhaps she could entertain him too one day, she said. The ordeal was far lighter than she had feared it would be. There was a strong undercurrent of excitement in her heart, flushing her cheeks and sparkling in her eyes. Yet never for one moment was she even tempted to forget that he was now vowed to God. It seemed to her as if she talked with him in the spirit of that place where there is neither marrying nor giving in marriage. Those two years of quiet in the north, occupied even more than she recognized in the rearranging of her relations with the memory of this young man, had done their work. She still kindled at his presence, but it was at the presence of one who had undertaken an adventure that destroyed altogether her old relations with him. She was enkindled even more by the sense of her own security and, as she looked at him, by the sense of his security, too. Robin was gone. Here, instead, was young Mr. Audrey, seminary student, who even in a court of law could swear before God that he was not a priest, nor had been ordained beyond the seas. So they sat and exchanged news. She told him of the rumors of his father that had come to her from time to time. He would be a magistrate yet, it was said, so hot was his loyalty. Even her grace, it was reported, had vowed she wished she had a thousand such country gentlemen on whose faithfulness she could depend. And Robin gave her news of the seminary, of the hours of rising and sleeping, of the sports there, of the confessors for the faith who came and went, of Dr. Allen. He told her, too, of Mr. Garlick and Mr. Ludlam. He often had talked with them of Derbyshire, he said. It was very peaceful and very stirring, too, to sit here in the lighted parlor and hear and give the news, while the company gathered round Anthony and Father Campion, talked in low voices, and Mistress Babington, Placid, watched them and listened. He showed her, too, Mr. mayne's beads which she had given him so long ago, hung in a little packet around his neck. More than once as they talked, Marjorie found herself looking at Mr. Ballard, or, as he was called here, Captain Fortescue. It was he who seemed the leader of the troop, and indeed, as Robin told her in a whisper, that was what he was. He came and went frequently, he said. His manner and his carriage were reassuring to the suspicious. He appeared, perhaps, the last man in the world to be a priest. He was a big man, as has been said, and he had a frank, assured way with him. He was leaning forward even now as she looked at him, and seemed laying down the law, though in what was almost a whisper. Father Campion was watching him too, she noticed, and what she had learned of Father Campion in the last few hours led her to wonder whether there was not something of doubtfulness in his opinion of him. Father Campion suddenly shook his head sharply. "'I am not of that view at all,' he said. "'I—' And once more his voice sank so low as to be inaudible, and the rest leaned closer about him. Mr. Anthony Babington seemed silent and even a little displeased when, half an hour later, the visitors were all gone downstairs to supper. Three or four of them were to sleep in the house, the rest, of whom Robin was one, had Captain Fortescue's instructions as to where lodgings were prepared, but the whole company was tired out with the long ride from the coast, and would be seen no more that night. Marjorie knew enough of the division of opinion among Catholics, and of Mr. Babington in particular, to have a general view as to why her companion was displeased, but more than that she did not know, nor what point in particular it was on which the argument had run. The one party, of Mr. Babington's kind, held that Catholics were, morally, in a state of war, war had been declared upon them without justification by the secular authorities and physical instruments including persuevance and the rack were employed against them then why should not they too employ the same kind of instruments if they could in return the second party held that a religious persecution could not be held to constitute a state of war the apostles peter and paul for example not only did not employ the arm of flesh against the roman empire but actually repudiated it and this party further held that even the pope's bull relieving elizabeth's subjects from their allegiance did so only in an interior sense in such a manner that, while they must still regard her personal and individual rights, such rights as any human being possessed, they were not bound to render interior loyalty to her as their queen, and need not, for example, though they were not forbidden to do so, regard it as a duty to fight for her, in the event, let us say, of an armed invasion from Spain. There, then, was the situation, and Mr. Anthony had plainly crossed swords this evening on the point. "'The Jesuit is too simple,' he said suddenly as he strode about. "'I think—' he broke off. His sister smiled upon him placidly. "'You are too hot, Anthony.' she said. The man turned sharply towards her. All the praying in the world, he said, has not saved us so far. It seems to me time. Perhaps our Lord would not have us saved, she said, as you mean it. It was not until Christmas Eve that Marjorie went to St. Paul's, for all that it was so close. But the days were taken up with the visitors. A hundred matters had to be arranged, for it was decided that before the new year all were to be dispersed. Captain Fortescue and Robin were to leave again for the continent on the day following Christmas Day itself. Marjorie made acquaintance during these days with more than one meeting place of the Catholics in London. One was a quiet little house near St. Bartholomew's the Great, where a widow had three or four sets of lodgings, occupied frequently by priests and other Catholics, who were best out of sight. And it was here that Mass was to be said on Christmas Day. Another was in the Spanish Embassy, and here, to her joy, she looked openly upon a chapel of her faith, and from the gallery adored her Lord in the tabernacle. But even this was accomplished with an air of uneasiness in those around her. The Spanish priest who took them in walked quickly and interrupted them before they were done, and seemed glad to see the last of them. It was explained to Marjorie that the ambassador did not wish to give causeless offense to the Protestant court. And now on Christmas Eve, Robin, Anthony, and the two ladies entered the cathedral as dusk was falling, first passing through the burial ground, over the wall of which leaned the rows of houses in whose windows lights were beginning to burn. The very dimness of the air made the enormous heights of the great church more impressive. Before them stretched the long nave, over 700 feet from end to end. From floor to roof the eye traveled up the bunches of slender pillars to the dark ceiling, newly restored after the fire, A hundred and fifty feet. The tall windows on either side, and the clerestory lights above, glimmered faintly in the darkening light. But to the Catholic eyes that looked on it, the desolation was more apparent than the splendor. There were plenty of people here, indeed. Groups moved up and down, talking, directing themselves more and more towards the exits, as the night was coming on and the church would be closed presently. In one aisle a man was talking aloud, as if lecturing, with a crowd of heads about him. In another, a number of soberly dressed men were putting up their papers and ink on the little tables that stood in a row. This was Scrivener's Corner, she was told. From a third, half a dozen persons were dejectedly moving away. These were servants that had waited to be hired. But the soul of the place was gone. When they came out into the transepts, Anthony stopped them with a gesture, while a couple of porters, carrying boxes on their heads, pushed by on their shortcut through the cathedral. It was there, he said, that the altars stood. He pointed between the pillars on either side, and there, up little raised steps, lay the floors of the chapels. But within all was empty, except for a tomb or two, some tattered colors and the piscina still in place. Where the altars had stood, there were blank spaces of wall, piled up in one such place where rows of wooden seats set there for want of room. Opposite the entrance to the choir, where once overhead had hung the great rood, the four stood and looked in, through a gap which the masons were mending in the high wall that had bricked off the chancel from the nave. The splendid pavement still shone beneath, refracting back from its surface the glimmer of light from the stained windows above. But the head of the body was gone. Somewhere beneath the deep-shadowed altar screen, they could make out an erection that might have been an altar, only they knew it was not. It was no longer the stone of sacrifice whence the smoke of the mystical Calvary ascended day by day. It was the table, and no more, where bread and wine were eaten and drunk in memory of an event whose deathless energy had ceased, in this place at least, to operate. Yet it was here, thought Marjorie, that only forty years ago, scarcely more than twenty years before she was born, on this very night, the great church had hummed and vibrated with life. Round all the walls had sat priests, each in his place, and beside each kneeled a penitent, making ready for the joy of Bethlehem once again, wise and simple, shepherds and magi yet all simple before the baffling and entrancing mystery. There had been footsteps and voices there, too, yet of men who were busy upon their father's affairs and their father's house, and not upon their own. They were going from altar to altar, speaking with their friends at court. And here, opposite where she stood and peeped in the empty cold darkness, there had burned lights before the throne of him who had made heaven and earth, and did his father's will on earth as it was done in heaven, Forty years ago the life of this church was rising on this very night, with a hum as of an approaching multitude, from hour to hour, brightening and quickening as it came, up to the glory of the midnight mass, the crowded church alight from end to end, the smell of bog and bay in the air, soon to be met and crowned by the savour of incense smoke. And the world of spirit too quickened about them. And the angels, she thought, came down from heaven, as men up from the city round about to greet him who was king of both angels and men. And now in this new England the church, empty of the divine presence, was emptying too of its human visitors. She could hear great doors somewhere crash together, and the reverberation roll beneath the stone vaulting. It would empty soon, desolate and dark, and so it would be all night. Why did not the very stones cry out? Mistress Alice touched her on the arm. We must be going, she said. They are closing the church. She had a long talk with Robin on Christmas night. The day had passed, making strange impressions on her, which she could not understand. Partly it was the contrast between the homely associations of the feast, begun, as it was for her, with the mass before dawn, the room at the top of the widow's house was crowded all the while she was there, between these associations and the unfamiliarity of the place. She had felt curiously apart from all that she saw that day in the streets, the patrolling groups, the singers, the monstrous-headed mummers, of whom companies went about all day, two or three glimpses of important city festivities, the garlands that decorated many of the houses. It seemed to her as a shadow show without sense or meaning, since the heart of Christmas was gone. Partly, too, no doubt, it was the memory of a former Christmas, three years ago, when she had begun to understand that Robin loved her. And he was with her again, yet all that he had stood for to her was gone, and another significance had taken its place. He was nearer to her heart in one manner, though utterly removed in another. It was as when a friend was dead. His familiar presence is gone, but now that one physical barrier is vanished, his presence is there closer than ever, though in another fashion. Robin had come in to sup. Captain Fortescue would fetch him about nine o'clock, and the two were to ride for the coast before dawn. The four sat quiet after supper, speaking in subdued voices, of hopes for the future, when England should be besieged indeed by the spiritual forces that were gathering overseas. But they slipped gradually into talk of the past and of Derbyshire and of rides they remembered. Then, after a while, Anthony was called away. Mistress Alice moved back to the table to see her needlework the better, and Robin and Marjorie sat together by the fire. He told her again of the journey from Rheims, of the inns where they lodged, of the extraordinary care that was taken, even in that Catholic land, that no rumor of the nature of the party should slip out, lest some gossip precede them, or even follow them to the coast of England. They carried themselves even there, he said, as ordinary gentlemen traveling together. Two of them were supposed to be lawyers. He himself passed as Mr. Ballard's servant. They heard mass when they could in the larger towns, but even then not altogether. The landing in England had been easier, he said, than he had thought, though he had learned afterwards that a helpful young man who had offered to show him to an inn in Folkestone, and in whose presence Mr. Ballard had taken care to give him a good rating for dropping a bag with loud oaths, was a well-known informer. However, no harm was done. Mr. Ballard's admirable bearing, and his oaths in particular, had seemed to satisfy the young man, and he had troubled them no more. Marjorie did not say much. She listened with a fierce attention, so much interested that she was scarcely aware of her own interest. She looked up, half betrayed into annoyance, when a placid laugh from Mistress Alice at the table showed that another was listening too. She too then had to give her news, and to receive messages for the Derbyshire folk whom Robin wished to greet, and it was not until Mistress Alice slipped out of the room that she uttered a word of what she had been hoping all day she might have an opportunity to say. "'Mr. Audrey,' she said, for she was careful to use this form of address, "'I wish you to pray for me. I do not know what to do.' He was silent. "'At present,' she said, gathering courage, "'my duty is clear. I must be at home, for my mother's sake if for nothing else. And, as I told you, I think I shall be able to do something for priests.' "'But if my mother died—' "'Yes,' he said as she stopped again. She glanced up at his serious, deep-eyed face, half in shadow and half in light, so familiar and yet so utterly apart from the boy she had known. "'Well,' she said, "'I think of you as a priest already, and I can speak to you freely. "'Well, I am not sure whether I too shall not go overseas to serve God better.' "'You mean—' "'Yes. A dozen or more are gone from Derbyshire, whose names I know. "'Some are gone to Bruges, two or three to Rome, two or three more to Spain—' We women cannot do what priests can, but at least we can serve God in religion. She looked at him again, expecting an answer. She saw him move his head as if to answer, then he smiled suddenly. Well, however you look at me, I am not a priest. You had best speak to one, Father Campion or another. But, and I will pray for you, he said with an air of finality. Then Mistress Alice came back. She never forgot all her life long the little scene that took place when Captain Fortescue came in with Mr. Babington to fetch Robin away yet the whole of its vividness rose from its interior significance. Externally here was a quiet parlor. Two ladies, for the girl afterwards seemed to see herself in the picture, stood by the fireplace. Mistress Alice still held her needlework gathered up in one hand, and her spools of thread and a pincushion lay on the polished table. And the two gentlemen, for Captain Fortescue would not sit down, and Robin had risen at his entrance, the two gentlemen stood by it. They were not in their boots, for they were not to ride till morning. They appeared two ordinary gentlemen, each hat in hand, and Robin had his cloak across his arm. Anthony Babington stood in the shadow by the door, and, beyond him, the girl could see the face of Dick, who had come up to say goodbye again to his old master. That was all, four men and two ladies. None raised his voice, none made a gesture. The home party spoke of the journey and of their hopes that all would go well. The travelers, or rather the leader, for Robin spoke not one word, good or bad, said that he was sure it would be so. There was not one-tenth of the difficulty in getting out of England as of getting into it. Then again, he said that it was late, that he had still one or two matters to arrange, that they must be out of London as soon as the gates opened, and the scene ended. Robin bowed to the two ladies, precisely and courteously, making no difference between them, and wheeled and went out, and she saw Dick's face, too, vanish from the door, and heard the voices of the two on the stairs. Marjorie returned the salute of Mr. Ballard, longing to entreat him to take good care of the boy, yet knowing that she must not and could not. Then he, too, was gone, with Anthony to see him downstairs. And Marjorie, without a word, went straight through to her room, fearing to trust her own voice, for she felt that her heart was gone with them. Yet not for one moment did even her sensitive soul distrust any more the nature of the love that she bore to the lad. But Mistress Alice sat down again to her sewing.